Well, good morning. It's already been mentioned in a few different spots during the service, but uh, Pastor Bill Henderson was meant to be with us this morning. He is the pastor of Caledon Hills Fellowship Baptist Church, and we were meant to do a pulpit swap uh, with their church, uh, but unfortunately, Bill is not able to be with us this morning uh, due to illness, and so Darnell is over there preaching, uh, but you have me, so I apologize about that, but here we are. So we're in a series, The Art of Christian Living, and so this was going to be a one-off sermon, but really, in some sense, we're just going to continue along. I mean, really, anytime you're preaching out of the scriptures, you could file it under the category, The Art of Christian Living. So we're going to be in Philippians 3 this morning. You can be turning there in your Bibles. If you have a pew Bible, the black Bible in front of you, it's on page 981. We're going to be in Philippians 3, and we're going to be considering just three verses, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, page 981 in the pew Bible. And if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be discussing this morning, under this category, this heading of the art of Christian living, passionately pursuing Jesus. Philippians 3, uh, verses 12 through 14, this is what Holy Scripture says. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for every person in this room, for those who are longtime members, and for those who might be guests here this morning for the very first time. I thank you for those who are feeling uplifted and encouraged in their spirits, and I thank you for those who are maybe really at, at, in the depths and at the lowest of valleys, just going through difficult times and trials. We thank you that you have summoned us here and gathered us here in this place, even this morning. And so God, I trust and I pray that you would have a word for each man, each woman, each young man and each young woman, and even the boys and the girls in this room. And I just pray that as we look at these three short verses in Philippians, that you would minister to us. God, you are the ultimate and the great shepherd of this church. It is not a mere man that guides and sustains this church, but it is you, the Lord Jesus who directs and sustains and leads and shepherds his people. And so we pray that you would even do that in these moments through the preaching of your word. We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
I want to begin this morning by telling you about a few famous races from across the globe. The first of these is the Spartathlon Ultra Marathon. It takes place in September in Greece every year, and distance runners from across the world come to participate in this race. They follow the trail of the ancient runner Faith Dipides, uh, who ran from Sparta to Athens to seek help in war between the Greeks and the Persians in 490 BC. Most of you might be loosely aware of that history, but according to one ancient historian, he arrived the day after he started running, which meant that he covered the 246-kilometer distance in roughly 36 hours. Today, the top runners complete the race in the 21 to 23-hour range. Obviously, they have more training, they have more supplies, maybe a better course is mapped out for them. The second race is the Marathon des Sables. It takes place in Morocco in the, in the Saharan Desert. There are five stages over six days. The total race is about 250 kilometers or five and a half marathons. It says on their website under what to expect this. Stating the obvious, it will be very hot. Or it will be hot, it will be very hot. Midday temperatures in the Sahara can peak at 50 degrees Celsius. So you will need something on your head. The third race is the man versus horse marathon, and it is what it sounds like. This takes place in Wales, in the Welsh mountains, and uh, it's about a 35-kilometer-long race, and the runners get a 15-minute advantage. This year, in 2023, in the month of June, 60 horses and 1,000 runners took part in the race. And for only the fourth time... In 42 years of its history, man prevailed over horse. There's one other race I want to tell you about. This race premiered on Amazon Prime conveniently in the first year of the pandemic, so that entertained Alyssa and me for about 10 hours. It is called the world's toughest race, Eco Challenge Fiji. Some of you may be familiar with this race. Maybe you've watched it yourself. It is a team race. Each team has four members, and they trek across the island nation of Fiji within the 11-day time limit. There are five legs, and they cover 671 kilometers from start to finish. Throughout the course of the race, they are mountain biking, they are paddleboarding, hiking in the jungle, running, swimming, whitewater rafting, building rafts out of logs and ropes, rock climbing, and rappelling in order to get through this course. One man gets heat stroke on the first day because he was paddling too hard in the heat of the day. Another competitor loses control on his bike, crashes, cracks his helmet, and his team has to bow out due to the head injury. There's one point in the course where teams need to swim through eight kilometers of river. And, in, and the water temperature, even in tropical Fiji, because of the altitude, is 15 degrees Celsius. And if you know anything about water temperature, that's extremely cold. There's a Spanish man who, whose body goes into hypothermic shock after that section. For the top teams, they would complete the course in just under six days, getting very little sleep during that race. The world's toughest race. This morning, I want to speak to you about another race, though. Not an adventure race across the island nation of Fiji, but a spiritual race that you will run over the course of your life. The race of the Christian life. And the reason why I'm talking about these races is because Paul uses the athletic imagery in our passage. 
he uses athletic imagery or the metaphor of the runner in order to convey to us realities about the Christian life. I've organized our sermon under just two simple headings this morning. If you're taking notes, the first point is this. Realize that you are in a race. Realize that you are in a race. Paul begins by showing us why we need to run. He writes, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In the context, Paul is saying that I have not been resurrected yet. He has not been made perfect. He has just said that the singular purpose of his life in verse 8 is that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So to put this in modern terms, he's saying, I still have room to grow. I've not yet crossed the finish line. I've not yet reached the goal. And God's purposes, when he laid hold of me, have not been fully accomplished yet. And just as a reminder, let us be reminded of who it is that is writing these words. It is the Apostle Paul. The man who, as the great persecutor of the church, was confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and in moments was converted radically. He was made to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the primary instrument that God used to expand the kingdom of Christ across the Roman Empire in the first century. He wrote 13 out of 27 of the books of the New Testament. He was beaten, imprisoned, and eventually executed for his commitment to the Lord Jesus. And he writes this letter from prison. It is that Apostle Paul that says, I'm not perfect. God's purpose for me is not yet finished. I have not crossed the finish line. I have not yet reached the goal. And if this is true for Paul, strong believer, devout apostle, and missionary extraordinaire, then no matter how long you have been walking with Christ, no matter how mature you are in your Christian faith, no matter how much of the Bible you know or how many books on theology you, re- you read, no matter how, holy, how much holiness you have attained in your life, there certainly is progress for you and I to make in this race called the Christian life. There is room for us to grow. You're in a race. Verse 12, he goes on, he says, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's a bit wordy, it's a bit um, clunky in the English, but I, I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Let's just think for a moment about the process of adoption. A husband and a wife decide together that they would like to adopt a child into their family. So they fill out the necessary paperwork, they pay the standard fees, they go through the due process so that they are able to meet and bring home their new child. So mom and dad bring home little Benjamin, they call him. And at first, as all parents know, Ben eats, 
poops, and sleeps. And so the parent's primary role is to keep their new son alive. But as Ben grows, the parents have hopes and aspirations for their son. For him to take up a particular interest or hobby. For him to work hard at school and earn good grades. For him to be kind to others and be a good influence on his friends. For him to have a healthy and stable home to grow up in that he might not have had otherwise. And as Christian parents, for Ben to be saved at a young age and serve the Lord with his whole heart. And for Ben to truly become a part of the family, to belong, along, to belong alongside the other siblings and to know the parents intimately and to call them mom and dad. The reason why the couple adopted Ben is so much more than to simply keep him alive physically. And so it is with the Christian life. When Jesus laid a hold of you and me, he had aspirations for us. He lays hold of us not so that we can attach the label Christian to ourselves and then continue on with life as it was before. He has saved us not simply so that we could have a religious affiliation. He has saved us not merely so that we could have a one-way ticket to heaven. No. He made us his own so that we might pursue him and live for his purposes for us. He has made us his own so that we might increasingly make him our own. To put it slightly differently, Christ has treasured you so that you might treasure him. That's his purpose for you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. So in order to run this race well, we need to have the simple recognition that we are, in fact, in a race. You cannot be a spiritual couch potato. You cannot, as if you're floating downstream on a tube, just kind of, lounge and lay back and relax and just kind of go along with the current. You can't just hold your one-way ticket to heaven in your pocket and then go and do life as you want to do. No, you are called, my friend, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, brother and sister, you're called to run. You're in a race, and you're called to run in that race. And that really is our second point. Second point is this. Run hard in the race. Run hard in the race. In 1980, there was a woman who won the Boston Marathon in record time. Even by today's records, it's remarkable. She completed the marathon in two hours and 32 minutes. This was an improvement from her previous race by 25 minutes, or nearly half an hour, which is remarkable when you're talking about you know, world record times for a marathon or personal records for a marathon. Her name was Rosie Ruiz. She ran across the finish line. Ruiz was sworn by the media and received the prestigious title of Boston Marathon winner. The only problem was that Ruiz had started the race, hopped into a cab, got out of the taxi about a half a mile away from the finish, ran to the finish line and collapsing as if she had run the whole thing. And obviously this is a negative example of how to run any race, including the race of the Christian life. Now it is true, right, because we're Protestants in here, we believe in the five solas of the Reformation, we believe that the gospel or salvation is by grace through faith alone, it, that is true. We can't earn our way into heaven, and we cannot merit God's acceptance of us. 
But to conclude from such gospel truths that effort is not required in the Christian life or that calls for things like discipline and self-control and diligence in the Christian life amount to legalism is unhealthy, unhelpful, and unbiblical. Let me just say that again because I think it might be a controversial statement. To conclude from gospel truths such as grace, salvation is by grace through faith alone, that effort is not required in the Christian life, or that calls for things like discipline, self-control, and diligence in the Christian life amount to legalism, is unhealthy, unhelpful, and unbiblical. When Paul writes about his experience of the Christian life, he invokes the metaphor of the athlete. In another place, he invokes the imagery of warfare. And then twice in our passage, Paul uses the phrase, I press on. He does that in verse 12, but I press on to make it my own. And he does that again in verse 14, I press on. This word refers to a person quickly and resolutely moving towards a particular goal. Christians are people who are motivated. Christians are people who have ambition in the best of senses. And Paul is saying that he is striving hard after something. And so, my friend, the strongest Christians are not those who sit back, trust God, and do nothing. But the strongest Christians are those who are actively and intentionally engaged in making progress in the Christian life. So what that means then is that God invites us and he summons us to participate in the race of the Christian life. God has saved us, okay? He has placed us into the race, not at the finish line, but at the starting line, and he calls us to run. Paul then goes on in verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul says that he is focused There are other things that could have distracted him. There are lesser things, good things even, that could have occupied his time and attention. But he says that those are lesser priorities, and there is one thing that I pursue, and that is an increasing experiential knowledge of Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Paul wanted to live his life in such a way that the best thing and the most important thing is prioritized. He lives his life in such a way that when he comes to the end of it, that he will not regret the way that he had lived his life. And there's a phrase here for us that I want to kind of hone in on just for a few moments, and that is the phrase that Paul runs while forgetting what lies behind. So in a race, an athlete probably wouldn't look back and marvel on the distance that he had covered. And the best runners probably shouldn't spend too much time looking over their shoulders to see what their competitors are doing. No, he is locked and loaded, set on the finish line and arriving there. And there's a testimony from my own life that might be helpful to illustrate this. I was probably about age 18 or maybe 17 or 18. It was early in my Christian life. And I was sitting down and I was discouraged by my upbringing and home situation. I was dating a girl, most of you know this, she was the pastor's daughter, and so I was in the pastor's home a lot, uh, over for several meals a week, and just, you know, part of their family, observing the way that they did things, observing the way that they interacted with one another, and they weren't perfect by any means, but it was a loving home, and it was a godly home, 
And it was a Christ-centered home. It was a home where mom and dad remained together. It was a home where, you know, siblings truly loved one another and loved their parents. And I love my mother, and I think she did the best that she could given the circumstances to raise me. But I just didn't have that growing up. My parents were not Christians. Our family was not centered around Christ and godly principles. My mom and dad divorced somewhere in the late elementary and early junior high years. They could have separated and then divorced. It was kind of a two-step thing. And I remember feeling sad and discouraged by the stark contrast between my upbringing and what I was seeing in front of me with this pastor's family, the daughter uh, who I was dating. And my pastor said something to me along these lines, and it's proved immensely helpful for me. He says, are you going to let the first 18 years of your life define the rest of your life? And sometimes we can be a prisoner to our past. And and I'm not saying that things from the past should be just brushed over and not dealt with. And I'm not saying that if you need to go and make something right, that you can just ignore that. I'm not saying that if you have been deeply hurt by someone else, that you shouldn't talk to someone about that or seek counsel. But that notwithstanding, God gives permission to us to not be a prisoner of our past. Our past does influence who we are, but it does not determine who we can become. And if you're in Christ, no matter what you have done or what has been done to you, I promise you, because the scriptures do, that there is a bright path ahead of you that God has already laid out. Jesus is a wonderful Savior and a tremendous shepherd who can lead you out of the deepest of valleys. And I know that in a room of this size, there are some of you who desperately need to hear that this morning. That there are things in your past or there are things that kind of hang on to you. It's baggage for for whatever reason. And again, you might need to make something right or you might need to seek counsel from a friend. But those things notwithstanding, God wants you not to be bogged down and chained to the things of your past. But he wants you to run freely towards the finish line, pursuing ever increasingly a deeper experiential knowledge of him, your savior and your shepherd. So friend, what are you living for today? What is your ultimate purpose and goal in life? Going from my testimony to Paul's for just a moment. Paul had it all. Let me explain what I mean by that. He just talks about it earlier in this chapter. He was born of the right stock. He belonged to the proper clan. He was brought up in pure Hebrew culture. He was a strict keeper of Jewish laws, which was an important aspect of cultural and societal life back then. He was an up-and-coming star in his religious sect, the Pharisees. He was trained under the leading rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. He was well-respected and likely had power and influence in society. But all of that, he was willing to give up overnight. In an instant, he took all those privileges and accomplishments and threw them in a metaphorical trash bin because he had discovered something, nay, someone, who was far more valuable valuable and precious. 
When Paul met the risen Christ, it was as if he started living for the first time. When Paul was confronted with Christ, it was as if he truly found himself as Christ found him. And so for, for, and so for Paul, for the rest of his life, he would make it his life's ambition to live to know this wonderful Christ. To know him increasingly in this life, though imperfectly, and to know him fully at the resurrection of the just without hindrance. Paul ran the race because he knew that there was a matchless and unimaginably good prize waiting for him at the end. This is what got him out of bed in the morning. This is what fueled his soul to keep going. This was the motivation that kept him running. This is what gave to him purpose. This is what gave him a reason for living. This is what gave him joy, even as he was shackled in chains in Rome. And therefore, this shaped everything about the Apostles Paul's life and ministry. Christian, are you living for this? And to the non-Christian, let me just speak to you, let me just simply ask you, do you have something like this? Something so valuable, something so precious, something so worthy that you're willing to throw everything away in order to gain that one thing? And if you don't have that one thing, may I suggest to you that perhaps you were made for something greater than you even realize? That you were made to know God through his son Jesus, and until you realize that, you cannot live as you were meant to live. I want to end with the story of a Christian runner. I'm going to give an extended biographical sketch on a man by the name of, you've probably heard him, Eric Little. Eric Little was born on January the, 20th, or January the 16th, 1902, in North China. What was a Scottish boy doing being born in North China in the, 19, in the early 1900s? Well, his parents were sent out by the London Missionary Society, and that's why they were there in China. Eric would go to school at Eltham College in England from age 6 to 18, but his parents would be in China for most of that time. They would come back on furlough on a number of occasions, but most of his upbringing would be away from his parents. He then studied at Edinburgh University, and he was quite the athlete. He played rugby for the university and also internationally for Scotland. He was also a runner, competed in the 100 and the 220 yards for the university, and eventually he had to kind of choose rugby or athletics. And there was cricket in there too, but I don't think he competed at the university level. So he had to choose between these three sports, particularly between running and rugby, and running won the day. He made it a goal to compete at the Paris Olympics in 1924 in the 100-meter race. But he discovered the schedule and found out that the 100-meter event was scheduled for a Sunday. And so because he was a strict Sabbatarian, that is, that he viewed the Sunday as a holy and consecrated day, he chose not to race out of his religious convictions. And so he switched from the 100-meter to the 400-meter event. He went on to win the gold medal in the 400-meter and a bronze in the 200. After this, Eric returned to North China in 1925, in his early 20s. For more than a decade, he served as a missionary in China. He married a Canadian missionary, Florence McKenzie, and they had three daughters together. 
Then in 1941, the British government advised all British nationals to leave China because the climate was becoming quite dangerous. And so Eric said to his wife that you are to return to Canada with our two daughters, and she was also pregnant, so with one in tow, but he remained in North China. In 1943, Little was put in an internment camp where he would spend the rest of his days. While in that camp, he was a leader and organizer. He would help the elderly. He taught Bible classes at the camp's school. He was in charge of one of the boys' dorms. He organized sports. He arranged games. He taught science to the children. He was called Uncle Eric. One fellow internee said of him, he was the finest Christian gentleman it, was, it has been my pleasure to meet. In all the time in the camp, I have never heard him say a bad word about anybody. It was also later revealed that Little had an opportunity to leave the camp, but he gave his place to a pregnant woman instead. In the camp, Little developed a brain tumor, perhaps connected to overwork and malnourishment, on his deathbed, Little would eventually slip into a coma. But before losing consciousness, he was able to mutter out either the full, full phrase, it's complete surrender, or simply the word surrender. Different accounts kind of account for this differently. But it was, as one article put it, a fitting one-word summation of Little's life in service to God. Then, on February 21st, 1945, Eric Little died just five months before liberation. Another fellow internee said, Upon Little's death, the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days, so great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. But for Eric, he had reached the finish line, hadn't he? He had completed the race, he had been running his whole life. And let me read one final quote from Little, and we will be done. This was from earlier in his life, obviously, but he said this. It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is a greater race than any I have run in Paris, and this race ends when God gives out the medals. Brother and sister, let us run this race called the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray that the things that have come out from your word would go forth and bear fruit in the lives of your people. May we love Christ, and may we more appreciate who he is and what he has done for us. And would you cause all of us to take stock of our lives, to evaluate our hearts, and to assure that we are running this race called the Christian life. May you be honored in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives, and in this church. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.